Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. And Luke Diebel. Hello from Australia. And today is a panelist episode, and we are going to be talking about some of the interesting conversations that have been going on on Twitter and some of the new releases to View, especially View 3.2. Something that comes up a lot when you're building a View application is how do I organize this? How am I going to be writing my code? Like with U3, am I going to use the composition API or am I going to use the options API? How, how far am I going to dive into one of those two directions? Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So today our goal is to talk about that a bit and just kind of discuss how we organize our code, how we feel about Composition API, Options API, and the just how things look in the ecosystem today. So Luke, I know you had a question to try and kick this off. Uh, I'll pass over to you so you can ask. Yeah, sure. It's, I guess it's not directly related to all of that, but it's, it probably will tie in eventually. So our question is, are there any folders that you add when starting a new new project. Maybe it's something that you add occasionally, depending on the project. It's like a really um, common folder that you'll add. Or maybe it's something that you add in just about every single project when you start it up. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. So I, I feel like this is a good question to start off because recently, as I've been trying out new view applications, I've been adding a hooks folder. And specifically in there, I've been extracting logic with the composition API and, and trying to centralize that as I would in React application using React hooks. I have some custom logic that I want to be able to reuse in my components, or I have some unique custom store that I, I'm not wanting to use Vuex for a particular thing. It feels more comfortable to have it in its own state, or access to an API, or I wrote a wrapper around Apollo GraphQL, so it looked a little more like the React hooks of Apollo client. And, and I put all of that in a hooks folder. Typically, besides something like that, I follow the defaults as they're created. So using Vue CLI, I have a store folder. If I'm using Vite, I'll add the store, store folder myself. But I, there's going to be a store folder. There may be a routes folder. Depends on how complicated the thing is. And components folder. I haven't really been using a utils folder even before the composition API. So I think that those are the big ones. Just components, views, or pages, depending on which framework I'm using. And store, and now hooks, are the main folders that I would create. Interesting. Like, to, to be honest, I don't even know at its core what hooks mean. I've always heard of React hooks and heard this thrown around and heard people compare hooks to the composition API. But what, what is a React hook and how does it kind of compare to Vue's composition API? It's not a hook in the true meaning of the word, as I understand it. Lindsay, you can validate this. I know in Drupal and, and, and other things, you know, hook is basically where your core is saying, or some part function of code is saying, okay, I'm doing this process now. Anybody wants to come in here and manipulate the data or do something, you know, if you implement a function with such such a name pattern, 
then we'll call your function. You can do whatever you want, and then we'll continue on. So that's that's the normal definition of a hook. But as I understand it, and I know Lindsay's about to clarify for us, that's not exactly how React hooks work. So I first off, well, I, I use React, but I don't use it enough to claim to be an expert for this discussion. So I could be wrong. And anyone who's a React expert, feel free to come in and, and correct me after. My understanding is React hooks do act as a hook in the sense that they go into the React core. And that's where your state is actually being stored using a functional component. So in, in React, there was originally this concept of class-based components and functional components. Functional components could not have state. Only class-based components could have state. And then when React Hooks was released, they let you have access to state, but I believe that's just stored as a linked list inside of the React runtime. And that's why it's referred to as a hook. And then as the function is triggered over and over and over in the React way, that hook is repeatedly fired to make sure that the state is up to date in the function that's being called. So that, that's why they're called hooks. But it definitely doesn't map in the same way that Drupal, I would imagine, or Vue with its lifecycle hooks, lifecycle methods, interacts with the core runtime. As with Vue, we've got the, the lifecycle methods for the component mounted. That's, that's basically a hook in, into the, the Vue runtime. It's, it's different in that sense because they don't just fire once. Uh, they don't fire at certain events. They're firing all the time as a reference into the core to, to get the data. So what you're saying is in React, you can't have hooks if you have no class? That is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, just making sure. Yep. I've got class. Yeah, I. so when I was getting into React, I, I first learned the class-based and functional components and tried to, tried to understand that. As soon as I saw hooks and as soon as hooks were available, I said, That's, this is excellent. I'm just writing functional components. And I got very familiar with hooks at the, in the early days when it was released. The, the company I was working at at the time, I built a Next.js application, and that was completely using hooks and functional components. And it was a blast. It was great. So much easier to work with. I was able to extract logic out into custom hooks. At that time, I think I stored them in a utils file because the concept of having a hooks folder didn't exist. But it, it felt very comfortable to work with for reusing code. And when I saw the Vue 3 syntax where they were where they were using ref and reactive and computed, it was very easy to make that thought process shift and say, oh, this is just hooks and view. And a lot of people, I think, just stopped there. And they're like, oh, I don't like hooks and react. I don't like react. I'm not going to like this. But if you look at it, it really does solve the, the problem of composition, of using these functions over and over in a composable way, putting these things together. Very similarly to how component architectures solved the issue of putting HTML and CSS together over and over and over. Composition, the Composition API or React folks solves that same problem at the logic level, which I really appreciate. Okay, can I just push on this a bit more? What does composable mean? I'm not claiming to be the expert. I will, I will say I am familiar. For me, composable or composition is just a functional programming approach of putting functions together in a way that you can put data in, it passes through a certain chain of events, and it comes out the other end. Whether or not that has side effects is up to the developer, but that's what I see as composition. So for example, in a project I'm working with on a client, we are building a system that allows composition of functions. It has nothing to do with Vue. It has nothing to do with React. It's literally just pure functional, take an input, return an output. It goes through all of these functions to get there. Right. Okay. That's that's starting to make sense because you know, if I'm honest, and I bet you, because if I'm feeling it, other people are too, 
a lot of people that probably don't have a lot of experience with coding don't actually know what composition means, don't know what composable means. And, you know, I think it can really hook people, if you'll pardon the pun, because we hear words like composition and composable. And I'll be honest, I still don't fully understand those words, but you don't need to in order to use the composition API. Like I use it every day in my work now. And so, like, I, I guess I also kind of want to make people feel a bit reassured that sometimes this terminology is a little bit confusing. But once you dive in and actually start using it, you might actually find that the concepts, once you start playing around with them, aren't actually that complicated. So, yeah, composable, composition, words. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's unfortunate that there's not a better, clearer way to describe what this thing is supposed to do. Maybe we could have just called it the function-based API or the function API. I don't know. Because that's what it really comes down to is you're just invoking a whole bunch of functions and passing them around to each other is, is really how it works at the end of the day. And granted, Vue is not really a functional programming framework. We are very much mutating state. We are very much allowing side effects. That's, that's how Vue works. I don't think it's trying to be functional in the sense that React claims to be a functional framework or library or whatever it is today. That said... The, the Composition API does lean in that direction. It, it allows you to reuse your functions and put them together in unique ways so that just like components are building blocks in Legos and you can rearrange them, the functions can also be building blocks and you can rearrange them. And that's, that's just something that was missing, I feel, in Vue 2. With Vue 2, you had mixins, but mixins get lost. Mixins are harder to track. The oh, Options yes. API itself is amazing, but mixins are like the weak point, in my opinion. Yeah, so if you look at any type of uh, page, like even on View School, you know, where they talk about the structure of the composition API, the first thing they give, first example they give, very pretty color coding. I like the purple, especially, and the pink, about how you could have uh, various pieces of a setup. You have a, a specific piece of functionality that you're putting together, and the various pieces that you need are spread out all over the component. You know, you might have something that's a watcher. You might have something that's a calculated value. You might have a couple of methods. You've got some data properties. And they're spread all through different keys in your single file component or mix-in if you want to use a mix-in. But with the, I think a large part of the point of this is that you can put it all together in one piece. And I think that's what makes it reusable across other things too. Correct me if I'm wrong with it. So that I can understand because I know I've got some large components in this gigantic app that I work on every day where you got stuff spread all throughout your component and you got to track stuff down and name things in such a way and, and track your data and so on and so forth. And Lindsay, to your point in terms of about mix-ins getting lost, I can't count the number of times where I'm looking for something, I'm going to my debugger or, and I'm finding this value that's set somewhere. I'm like, hey, I can't find it in any component. Oh, go look for a mix-in. Yep, there it is right there. It's, it's set in the mix-in sort of off behind the scenes. And then once you remember where it is, then it's okay. But you got to look for that because all you have is the one little line that says mix-ins and the mix-in name and that's it. So anyway, I hope yeah. I added something. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like recently in projects, like when I've started new projects and I've gone all in with the composition API, what I love is I can go into my template, see something there that has been like a variable that's, it might be sitting like three levels deep into my code because I'm trying to organize my code really nicely and create good abstractions and all that. But I can still control click that variable in the template and, and find where it's coming from. And I can easily just keep like control clicking through in my IDE. And I just, I never got, I don't know if you could get it working well with mix-ins, 
but I couldn't get that working well with mix-ins. Whereas the fact that it plays nice with the composition API means that it's so easy to find where everything is coming from. Whereas with mix-ins, to be honest, I almost never used them because it was so difficult to find where all of this logic was coming from a lot of the time. Maybe that was just like, that might've been a downfall on my part because the code was badly organized. Whereas I guess you can kind of get away with that a little bit more with the composition API because you can always just control click through and find exactly what you're looking for. I will admit uh, when I was learning Vue, I got about halfway through the course I was studying. I think we were just about to start on mix-ins and I was like, eh, I don't need this anymore. I'll come back if I get stuck. I didn't learn mix-ins for like two years into my Vue career because it's not necessary to to write your code that way. It's nice. Sometimes it's really nice to use mix-ins. At work right now, we have a, a mix-in that's very specific. It just does a few things. And it's really nice to be able to just bring that in and access that in the in the component as we're writing it. But most of the time until I learned about mixins, I would just write a utility function and import it and then use it myself inside the code. And that made readability just so much easier in a component because I knew exactly where the, fu- the function was coming from. I knew how it was getting introduced into the component where I was using it. Most of the times when I found mixins to be in particular interesting is if I wanted particular like watchers set or I wanted my own mounted function to, to be fired that on repeatedly across different components. So I would write a mixin that has the watchers and I would have a mounted lifecycle hook and bring that in just to add some extra reactivity and, and observability into the component, less having straight methods or computed properties or something. That was when I found the most use out of mixins. And that's something that's also supported in the composition API. You can use the lifecycle hooks, you can use watchers, and everything still just works as you would expect. So I, I, I feel like the Composition API just improves on this reusability thing that Vue already had rather than re- trying to, to go off in a different direction. It still feels like Vue. It's still following the same logic at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think this is evident in that it's so easy to extract from... Well, once you learn it, it's actually quite easy to take something that is built using the Options API and convert it to something that is composition API. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's tools out there or if there will be tools out there that actually try to do most of this work for you. Yeah, I found it surprisingly easy to switch between the two when doing an upgrade. It's, uh, I mean, it helps that with the composition API, everything is still available. You can still do computer properties. You can still get props. You can still, you can still do all the things. Because again, it's just Vue. It, nothing, Vue itself is improved. And now you have this different functionality you can use. But it's still Vue at the end of the day. You're not trying to marry two different frameworks together to try and get anything done. It's not like you're having to render React components inside of Vue. You're, you are still just writing Vue code. One, one interesting point to, that I want to bring up at this point is that Evan Yu, in, in a discussion on GitHub, made some interesting comments about the future of Vue and what he, he is planning on marketing as the recommended approach. And at, controversy. And at the for, for context with this episode, uh, Vue 3.2 came out a few weeks ago, and that introduced a stable version of the script setup block. For those who aren't aware, script setup allows you to just use that setup function of the uh, export exported object that you're familiar with, and just have that be your, your entire script block. So you could declare variables, you could do imports, you could write your functions, and everything just written inside of that block is available in your template. Looking at it, it feels very much like Svelte where you just have your script block and you write things and it just works. feels very magical in that regard. And 
Evan Yu on a discussion in GitHub mentioned that the current recommended approach for writing view applications is to use single file components and script setup and the composition API, as opposed to continuing to use the options API or mixing and matching the options API with composition API. I found this very interesting, especially considering in what year was that? 2019, there was a lot of pushback from the community about whether or not the composition API should be adopted as the way forward, whether the options API should be deprecated or removed from view altogether. So I'm curious your opinions on this. I know there's a lot of strong opinions. I think we, we can have an opinion warning here. P- opinions are going to be shared and that's good because it's important to have discussion. Hot drama, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh gosh. Like I don't have a strong opinion on this because, and I really feel for Evan because I feel like this really is such a tough decision. There are obviously people that are so heated about wanting to just use the options API. Um, they feel like it's simpler. And I'd have to agree, especially if you're starting out, the options API probably does feel a lot simpler. But like, I just can't help but feel, I, I try to be, I'm trying to be really honest with myself here. Am I just using the composition API all the time now because it's the new hot thing or whatever? I don't think that's true though. I, like, I think the reason that I'm going all in with the composition API is I'm so sick of this feeling of, I don't know how to take this code apart, how to pull it apart and extract things. And to me, it's much more important for that to have, for there to be less of a boundary there, for it to be easy for me to extract things and still be able to click through so I know, you know, I can easily find out where things are coming from in my editor and all that kind of thing. To me, that is much more important and much more valuable than that nice feeling that you get from the options API. And you get a nice feeling from it? I prefer sorry. Is that like a warm, fuzzy feeling or what kind of a nice feeling do you get? It is. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling. It didn't start out that way. At first, it was like, oh, this is so annoying. Like, I I have to do, like, computed properties. I have to create a new variable. I feel like I'm writing more code. Now I have to export everything at the bottom of my file. You know what, though? Being able to go to the bottom of a file and see everything that is exposed on it, I remember saying this is one of the pros of the Composition API. Like, I, I remember hearing other people say that and thinking, oh, come on. Like, this is just clutching at straws here. No, I do it all of the time, especially when I'm really tired at the end of the day and I've just got sort of clicking through files and my brain isn't really caught up to what I actually need to do or whatever. Like I find myself constantly scrolling to the bottom of the file and having a look at what the thing exports so I fully understand what it does or trying to see what it's extending because sometimes as you delve deeper into the composition API, you'll have something that you'll have like files that are using other like composition API stuff and like files using each other all the way down. You know, actually, I'll give you an example. We have, we use the um, Axios, what is it? The, the View Composables Axios um, plugin. Do you remember what this is called? It's like a composables library available on the... Um, is that View Use? Yeah, View Use. And, he's, and the guy that created it has got one for Axios. And so I use that... And I create uh, a use, I could be doing this wrong here, but I'm going to say it anyway and just let everybody know my ignorance live on a podcast. Well, anyway, so... No, this uh, is recorded, Luke. They'll know, they won't know your ignorance for a few weeks yet. <laughs> that's right. That, that's totally fine. But yeah, so I'll then basically wrap that using the composition API to create my own API Axios thing. And that just adds API, like that adds my root API 
level to it. Gosh, I'm not explaining this very well, but it, it means that if I use my sort of root API composition function, I guess you'd call it, it automatically adds api.com right to it. So it just does that basic stuff. And it might set, for example, with credentials if I need that as well. So it just adds that little bit of configuration on top of that. But then on top of that, I've then got a a use, it's, it's like a use models with API composition function. I can't remember exactly what I called it. And basically, it orchestrates the idea of um, hitting an API endpoint and then updating that inside of the store. And so it's kind of an extra level of abstraction there. And the cool thing about this is if I want to use my API, I just use the use API composable, and then I can just do my API-related stuff. If I want to use an API with a model, I can use my use API model composable, which basically uses the use API functionality and updates the stuff in the store. So I, I don't know, hopefully people are understanding this where you can basically keep abstracting this out further and further with the composition API. But then like my use API model, for example, might be used, might have stuff that it's te- pulling out of um, use API, such as the promise, right? Because when you update something, you might then want the promise. And then I want to be like, oh, where's that promise coming from? I control click it. It takes me to the use API file. And then I can sort of like um, see where it comes from in there. So I don't know, I'm kind of like butchering this, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make is it becomes very, very easy to pull your code apart and separate concerns. Yeah. <laughs> Did it, I don't know if anybody tracked any of that. I, I was on that, please. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding. Yeah, I, I agree. I like the idea that you can abstract this stuff and then put it together and put it together in ways that you weren't necessarily planning on originally. But because it is contained in its own way, it's, it's flexible for, for whatever needs come up in the future. I really like that approach. How do we feel... Can, I, I know we talked about this a little bit, but if, if the options API is easier for people to learn, how do we feel about it not being the standard recommended way to use Vue? Conflicted, in a word. <laughs> yeah, conflicted because... Or here, here's another question while we think about it. Are we just biased towards the options API because that's what we learned and we've used for years at this point? And actually, the composition API is easier. Like, this is a question I've actually been asking myself for a while. Of, is the composition API the way to go if you're teaching somebody new or is it the options API? Are you wanting to be standardized on what's best practice recommended by the view team going forward? Or do you want to use the thing that is easier to, in our opinions, and easier to onboard on? Steve, do you have any opinion on this one? Wait a minute. So you're saying which one is easier to onboard with? I'm saying, do we have a bias with, do, uh, about which one is easier to onboard? Is the, is the composition API actually easier or is it what we feel is easier? It's the, the options API. Well, I'm sure it's like with anything else, uh, something's easy once you know it. So once you learn the composition API, yeah, that's going to be easy for you because you're used to doing it and dealing with it and it's easy to learn. But for someone who's new, it might not be so easy. I think it's why there's so many variables there. You know, what's someone's past experience? Do they have any coding experience? Do they have coding experience in one style versus another? There's so many things. You know, we'll go back to, and I'll, I'll get back here and then we'll go back to, you know, your question about which is better. My thought, you know, I'm reading this, this GitHub comment string where, where Evan talks about it being the, the recommended way to do it. And I think the other thing to, to consider is a development standpoint. So, uh, you know, you see this with WordPress versus Drupal. You see it with, I'm sure you see it with other projects as well. Whereas, okay, what's our focus? Do we want to make sure that we don't break 
anything backwards or do we want to keep going and do what's best use new development stuff and, and keep going forward that way. Because if you're anytime you're maintaining multiple ways of doing something within a code base that you're, that's that much more work that your developers are having to do to maintain this stuff. Maybe there's security bugs that come up or something like that, but you got to maintain the options API. Oh, we can't change this in option A because that'll break something in option B, so on and so forth. So I think that's that's definitely something to take into consideration. And as talks about in the uh, in his GitHub comment, it basically talks about a transition period where they avoided saying, okay, composition API is the way to go because we want to make sure it's working and we don't want to you know freak anybody out. Now that it's there, I say, if that's the road that the core has decided to go down, then that's what you pursue. Not uh, And you're getting... <laughs> I think they're hosed and that they're going to get blowback no matter what they do. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they do keep backward compatibility, they're going to get blowback from all the people say, no, we only want a way to do this. If they don't, then they're going to get blowback from all the people who are using Vue 2 and who who uh, don't want to learn something new, don't want to do that. I mean, in our in my code base at work, boy, going to Vue 2 to Vue 3 would be huge just in having to restructure you know, everything if we were to convert everything to the composition API. So speaking from a standpoint as a developer who maintains sites and, and apps and so on like that, I'm going to say my personal opinion is it's best to just, this is the new way we're doing thing. Let's go down that road as compared to try to, to keep everything backwards compatible. Because eventually people are going to start, they'll either come around grudgingly or they won't come around at all. And that's going to happen no matter what you do. They they were smart. If you remember, Evan came out, if I remember correctly, Evan came out of Google and had, had worked on Angular and he saw what they did and said, well, no, I can do things better. Here's one of the things. You know, I cannot count the number of stories I've heard on here, on JavaScript Jabber, on other developers who were like me, that when Angular 1 said, screw it, we're just trashing everything and starting over from scratch, they lost a lot of people. I came to view when that happened. As I've heard other people say, I think it was, oh, uh, Sean Wildermuth last week. He said the exact same thing. And I started laughing (laughs) because I've heard it so much. And they were smart in that they did it in a way that allowed a transition period. And now, okay, this is solid. Let's move forward with that. And I think that was a good thing to do. I think it was smoother and allows for uh, people to more easily transition. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, 
rocky road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. And it's going to be even smoother. Like in view 2.7, if I remember correctly here, I think you can start, I could be getting this backwards, but at 2.7, I'm pretty sure you can start turning on view three features. And in view three, Point two, which is the one that was just released, it's got almost almost 100% backwards compatibility with View 2. And on top of that, you can gradually just start turning things on and off. So basically, you can migrate from View 2 to View 3. And people have claimed, I've seen on online that people have claimed that they've done this with large projects with virtually no problems. And now they've got a View 2 code base working with Vue 3 without changing the code, and they're getting a lot of Vue 3's performance improvements. Like, that's in, to me, that is just insane. To, like, to his credit, that is just insane that we're able to migrate that easily. Like, I'm just thinking if, with, if Quasar adopts this, because I'm, you know, as a lot of you might know, I'm a Quasar developer. If I can go to Quasar with Vue 3, but basically staying on view two so and just having all the features of view three and then gradually just sort of knocking out parts of that one piece at a time, like that is just insane value. That is like, to me, that's almost unheard of in at least in the web development community. So yeah, that, that's, I, I guess kind of, I went a bit off track there to the original point, which was, you know, that's, that's a real valid point that some people either way are going to say, well, the options API is how we've done it from the beginning and we prefer doing it this way. There's going to be some pushback. Some people will simply disagree at its core and want to go all in options API and probably end up leaving the framework. But um, I don't know, maybe that's worth it in order to push the technology forward. That was Crush, by the way. Totally. <laughs> nice. I really like what you were saying about the, the migration, Luke. We're going to have a guest on in the near future who's going to talk about a larger larger application that will be migrating between View 2 and View 3. Oh, and awesome. It's spoilers for the future, but it's definitely a very impressive thing that they've pulled off to, to be able to do this migration. And you're right, a good chunk of the features are going to come into View 2 and version 2.7. I just, I look at this composition API, I'm personally excited by it, especially considering the, the things we've seen out of other frameworks recently. Like, View is a framework that has evolved over time. I, I personally didn't work with View 1, but when Evan was working on his uh, petite view, he, he said that a lot of the things he was doing are similar to what he did in View 1. And I can see how it's similar. I can also see how it's different and how it evolved from View 1 to View 2. And that's, that's part of things being a major release. And when View 4 comes, I'm sure it's going to be another major release. And there's going to be a number of changes that people won't necessarily agree with. Uh, just like people don't agree with the changes between Windows 7 and Windows 8 or Windows 10 and Windows 11. Or these are things that happen when when software reaches a major milestone. That something needs to change in order to continue progressing and growing. Otherwise, it's just going to stagnate, and we're not going to have this tool that we love uh, going forward in the future. What's Windows? 
Uh, it's this old operating system developed by Microsoft, but they went out of business a while ago. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay, cool. I didn't even know there was a Windows 11. That's just how out of the loop I am in the Windows world. <laughs> Still and we don't want Vue to be like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I think that does, maybe I'm being wildly optimistic, but I can't help but compare this to the Laravel world because that's kind of the other huge community that I'm a part of. And when I first started with Laravel, there were some rather big changes happening under the hood here and there. But it's reached a point where virtually nothing breaks now. Even in major releases, like their major releases are almost just a way of saying, it's almost just a way of tracking like long-term support and like sort of, I guess, sort of stamping. I, I actually, honestly, I, I don't even know. Like maybe it's so that if there are some small breaking changes, it's more predictable when those breaking changes will occur. But it's kind of made me really optimistic and come to believe if you keep pushing to be better, if you keep working to make your framework, and this goes for our code bases as well as developers, if we keep pushing for something better every day in our code and we keep optimizing and trying to find ways to make it to make it feel good and work well for us, then there will eventually be this kind of um, almost nirvana where for the most part, everything just makes sense. Like the, the whole system just flows really nicely. I feel like Laravel has done that now. And I feel like Vue is currently on that journey. To me, like Laravel, when they released version five and version six, Taylor actually said this was almost like him putting a stamp on it and saying, all right, I feel like the core of how this works is good now. I feel like this is probably not going to change much now and it's just going to be making things better and improvements. And that's what's happened ever since in the Laravel community. It's just been improvements, making things work better, adding really nice features uh, to the framework, you know, like making it faster and stuff like that here and there. And I feel like that's almost starting to happen with Vue. It's almost reaching a point where, once again, maybe I'm wildly optimistic here, but it's almost reaching a point where Everyone will be able to put a stamp on it and be like, this is how we do things with you now. From now on, I'm just going to be making cool tools and I'm just going to make your life whole much like a whole lot better. I can see that happening. I'm not I'm not 100% certain how close we are to that. Like I, I'd like to say, hey, we're pretty close. But let's also keep in mind that scoped slots are actually kind of a new thing in view in, in the history of things. So maybe there's some cool new feature that's going to come out in 3.3, 3.4, 3.5 or whatever. And then we're going to be like, oh, maybe we're there. That, that's one of the things I really like about the, the front-end ecosystem is everything continues to evolve. And we, we come at problems in different ways and try to solve for different cases. One final question as we're getting towards time, uh, as we're thinking about options, API, composition, API, all of this stuff, kind of tying back to your original question, Luke, when working with a component, how much of the logic do we want in the component themselves, the components themselves, as opposed to being abstracted out? Uh, with the composition API, this is really easy to see. You have a whole bunch of different composables and you're just referencing them in the component. I've seen some notes in the view docs saying this is not recommended to just pull everything out, just using it for specific cases where mixins would make sense in other uh, instances. But how do we feel about that? And and this can be referencing like Vuex and pulling out into global management as opposed to just using component level stuff. I'm I'm just curious how we feel. How much logic should be in the component versus accessible from outside the component? Well, I guess it depends. I mean, if I'm making that decision, 
I'm extracting things that can be used elsewhere so I don't have to re-implement it somewhere. If it's specific to that component, it stays in the component. If it's if it's something that's shared across components, then you extract it and, and put it somewhere else that's accessible to all the other components. Simple, but to me, that's what makes sense. And I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule depending on the case, but as a general rule, that's what makes sense to me. And that's how I try. That's how we try to do uh, child and parent components or, or any other structure where you keep stuff that uh, you only need within that component within that component. Yeah. It, it also like hugely, like just going on the back of that, it hugely depends on the size of your project. So the project that we have at work now is it's getting big quickly. It's very much a data-driven. Um, I work for an agriculture consulting company. Everything started in Excel spreadsheets. And now we're moving everything online and we have huge amounts of data and different data points that basically we need to record. And that creates a a large amount of repetition in your code if you're not careful. Repetition that we ended up with to begin with when, when we first started the project and we only had the options API. But now I'm reaching a point, especially as the project grows, almost all of my components, I want to extract as much of that logic out of the template as possible. For me, it, it, it's almost always a good idea in larger projects. For smaller projects, maybe not. But even like when I start new components now, that component is now going to get its own folder. It's going to get its own file for the logic because um, we're using the composition API. And there's a good chance that it's going to get more than one file in that folder. Like a classic example of this is a table. So um, actually, let me give you a sort of more hardcore, uh, a hard example. We have a livestock page where you can do livestock events. So things that happen, like maybe you, you purchase livestock, you sell livestock, you purchase grain for that livestock, basically, or there's, there's like 20 different events that you can do. And then there's different groups of livestock. So every single one of these tables, you can choose a group for that livestock. And in every single one of these tables, you can also delete a row on that table. Now, that functionality is going to be on every single one of those tables. And so we've got sort of a a core way of handling livestock tables. So there's a composable, um, and I don't know if I'm using the right terminology when I say composable here, but that's what I'll use for now. (laughs) So we've got a composable that basically handles all of that, that handles um, the orchestration that the logic basically that can have for um, choosing a livestock group and deleting a livestock grow. But as well, as well as that, each of these tables have their own folder. So let's just say we have a livestock purchase event. All right. So you're purchasing livestock. There will be a file for the template, which is the, the table, but then I'll, I'll also have a file for the row. And then I'll also have a file for the composable for that row. I'll also have a file for the composable of that table. I'll also have a file for the columns for that table. And the reason we have so many files now is because it just gets unwieldy. It's become so much code, especially when you're doing um, data collection stuff. And we're sort of constantly thinking of new ways that we can extract this logic. And I have found um, in the past, this used to be a huge pain point. Now with the composition API, I'm looking for new ways to pull this stuff apart because it just makes things so much easier to maintain in the future. I jump into that folder. I go, oh, here's the columns. I can just come in here and add a new column. And being able to do that using the composition API is just so much easier. And honestly, it's it's bliss. Like we were reaching a point where 
everything was getting so unwieldy. I'd get this gut feeling whenever I had to go back into that code and think, oh gosh, now I need to go through this massive file. Now I need to like copy paste, you know, I've got one livestock table. I'm going to copy that entire SFC and then paste it over here and try and abstract things as best as I can. And it turned into a bit of a nightmare. But yeah, for larger projects now, to answer that question, I almost always have a new folder for a new component. For smaller projects, it might just make zero sense at all. What about you, Lindsay? I don't know. Like, So for me, the, uh, the basic premise I take with the code is the same I would do with a component. I'm writing code, I'm writing component. As soon as I feel like it might be useful to break it out, I break it out. I'm currently still using Vue 2 over Vue 3 for my work projects. So if I'm breaking something out, it's typically going into Vue X. Occasionally, it will go into the mix-in that we're using, but very, very occasionally. So I don't know, like this, this is, this is like a constant struggle that I have in my head is how far out should something be extracted? How much should be contained within the component? And I, I think I tend to favor the component over abstracting it out, yeah. except in cases where it's obvious reuse, like API requests. But even then, if it's like a com- only that one component makes the API request, I may just leave it in the component. I, I just, I really like the, the component based approach of, this is this is what makes the application run, and when I when I approach it with the composition API, I'm thinking the same thing. The composition API is what makes it run, and then the component can just be the template, basically. But then I worry that we're getting back to that old style separation of concerns where you're breaking up logic and templating that didn't actually achieve things as we can in in the way that they wanted, as we can see with the rise of the component based frameworks where we have single file component in view. So I don't I don't. This is something I'm constantly reevaluating with myself. So I really appreciate these these opinions and views on things, uh, these these views on view, if you will. I was going to say no pun intended, but you beat me to it. I, I, there was pun fully intended there. Yeah, I, I even remember asking this on Twitter, and one person said, I think his name was like his name was JavaScript Coffee or something. I can't remember. He said, "Why not all of it?" When I was asking this question of how much to extract out, and I remember like having a shower that night and just thinking, "Oh, why not all of it?" And just kind of, you know, when I say that, I mean like the concept of extracting all of your logic out of the template. And I tried it just as an experiment. And I have to say, I'm pretty much all in with it now on larger projects. Like it's one of the, one of the biggest benefits that I didn't go over is I I love that I can have a file that is just JavaScript and my brain is just thinking JavaScript. It's just thinking logic. And there's something about opening a different file and kind of switching your brain's context between those different files. So I'll try and explain this better. I love that I can go into a JavaScript file and think, I've just got to focus on how this API request is done. I just, I need to know what the loading state is, all that kind of stuff. Then I can move over to the component and go, okay, cool. Now let's grab the stuff that I I just built in that JavaScript file and let's actually make it work. I, like, I don't know if I explained it this well, but one of them is very visual, a visual way of thinking. My brain's working differently there. Whereas in the JavaScript file, I'm thinking more, how do I get this to work? How do I pull these pieces of the puzzle together? I don't know if that kind of makes sense. Like one of them is how do I bring all the services within my app together so that they're going to work in terms of code? One of them is how do I make that look good now? Yeah. So just to clarify, you said something about JavaScript and logic going together. Is that correct? I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> oh, how could I? Love and then, 
So for those of you who can't see this, Luke has a great motions of hands going along that really emphasizes <laughs> what he's saying, and it really enhances uh, the delivery. So I feel sorry for those of you who can't see it, but I just thought I'd give you some, some background there. We should totally live stream these as well. Anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll table that discussion for later. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I I saw that discussion that you were having on Twitter about extracting everything out of the out of the component. That's part of what my my thinking process is about right now. How much logic should be in the component? How much should not be in the component? What balance is there in whichever direction? Especially with the composition API, I feel like that's that's a valuable discussion to have. And I don't expect it's one to, that we'll, we're going to resolve today. So if I, I hope everyone listening to this has enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to hearing your opinions on this as well. Feel free to reach out to us. We can continue having this conversation and and developing our universal understanding of how view is supposed to be viewed. Uh, that was good. Very <laughs> good. Very good. Oh, no, it's a problem if Steve's impressed with that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. At this point, we'll move on to picks. Uh, picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the community that are not necessarily just you. It doesn't have to be programming-related. And Luke, do you have a pick for us to start off today? Gosh, I've always got a slew of picks. So in, in preparation for this podcast, I actually did a bit of uh, watching of videos on what domain-driven design is. Because originally I thought this was going to be more about like folder structure. I'm glad it wasn't in the end. We can save that conversation for another day. And we did talk about it a little bit. But anyway, I watched this video on domain-driven design and it is What is DDD by Eric Evans. And I realized... I didn't really have as much an idea of what DDD actually is. And I, was, I found this video extremely interesting and it makes me feel like a lot of people misunderstand what DDD is and they take it too far. Whereas a lot of, it seems like a lot of people in the DDD community are basically saying, saying like, no, don't go too far with this. Spend some time talking about your domain. Spend some time talking about how you should organize things in your code and all, like figuring out the language so that you can communicate between the developers and other people in the business. But don't go overboard with it. Don't make it so that every single thing has to be 100% understandable and convertible to how you structure your code or whatever. So it was really eye-opening for me. And the video is, um, once again, what, what is DDD by Eric Evans? It's from a conference, DDD Europe 2019, and I'll send you that link so that we can put that into the show notes. Another one, all right, so my second pick is a video by Veritasium, which is clickbait is unreasonably effective. And I found this intensely interesting, and he talks about... Oh, that headline right? seems clickbaity. Yeah, and it's wonderful. And one of the guys in the video talks about the concept of legit bait, which I found really interesting. And they talk about how you can ethically do clickbait and how there's basically a spectrum where you can just do stuff that's 
basically lying and making big promises in the video just to get people into the door so that they'll watch it. But then he talks about that sort of dance between having a good title for your video, and it's specifically talking about YouTube, having a good title for that video that's also it pulls people into the video so they want to watch it, but also is done in such a way that the video does deliver on that promise. And he kind of talks about how, you know, the, the reality is with that clickbait, or as he calls it as well, legit bait, people aren't going to watch the video. So what are you supposed to do? If you want to get your video watched, you need to have a good title that pulls people in. You need to have a good cover image that pulls people in. And he talks about how he does tests as well. And um, this the Veritasium guy will change the cover image and the title a little bit, and his views will double, sometimes triple just by doing that. And so, you know, it's a really important factor in videos and it's kind of like how do you do that in an ethical way? I found it really interesting. And the last pick I want to do, I'm such a pickaholic, <laughs> is the Laravel, What's New in Laravel series by Mohammed Saeed. It's absolutely wonderful. If you just want, if you want to know what's new in Laravel, and I know a lot of you people are Laravel people too, and you want it to be really concise and see some examples. The What's New in Laravel series is absolutely awesome. Mohammed Saeed is the first employee of Laravel, so he really understands the framework well. And his videos are absolutely wonderful, very well done. So definitely check that out if you're in the Lar- check that out if you're in the Laravel community and you want to stay up to date there. So they're my three picks. Yeah, I just finished going through Jeffrey Way's uh, Laravel Eight from scratch, which is really good. I'm trying to you know just learn it from the ground up. So I can do some apps with inertia and view, but uh, it's a, it's a good series. Yeah, Jeffrey Way is the greatest teacher of all time, isn't he? Yeah, I need to get more into Laravel. I've only played with it so much. I'm hesitant just because I'm on the M1 Mac now. Uh, concerned it wouldn't work, and I'd just be sad. Well, now they've got Laravel sales, so you can start it up easy with Docker. You pretty much just say sail up, and uh, I could try that. Just works. It's wonderful. I know what I'm doing right after. Steve, what are your picks today? All right, so we've reached the high point in the podcast. And so I have a, uh, a couple of jokes to share here. Actually, well, this is true, but it'll come across as a joke. So the other day, my, my 10-year-old son asked me, Dad, do trees poop? Typical young boy type of question. I said, well, where do you think number two pencils come from? Wood, poop. Anyway, I'm not going to ruin it by explaining it. I'm not going to ruin it by explaining it. So it took a second. I got it. Yes. And then, you know, like everybody else, we all buy many, many things online. And so a few months ago, I bought a book called How to Scam People Online, but it still hasn't arrived yet. So hopefully it'll get here soon. Steve, I, I, I have something I need to tell you about that. Uh, <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> you were the seller. Is that it? It, it might not be arriving, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you. My pick today is a course-ish thing that I found. Uh, Rust Adventure with Chris Biscardi. It is a simple, at, at the moment, it is a simple five-step introduction into Rust that is sent to you in your inbox. One of the nice things about it is, by default, it looks like it, it sends one email a day. But if you respond to a to a question that it's asking at the bottom of the email, then you can get the emails faster. And it just walks you through how to build something very basic in Rust. Get Rust installed on your computer start running applications, get to understand how Rust works. It's just a really nice thing. And then you it has you build a weather API uh, or a weather app, app CLI using an API to access the weather in your location. So it's a it's a nice straightforward way to get introduced to Rust. That is at rustadventure.dev. 
And it looks like Chris is planning on expanding that in the future into more of what Rust does and how to how to explore that ecosystem. So if you're interested in Rust, uh, give that a try if you haven't started playing with Rust yet. So that is my pick today. That's really cool. I love the idea of you know sending out emails, you know, dripping out emails to teach you something. Yeah, I, I also appreciated that you could speed them up. I've had emails, email courses, as it were, I think from Caleb Porgio for for how to improve VS Code. And that was like a one email a day thing or one email every couple of days thing. And you, but you couldn't speed it up if you wanted more. You just had to wait for the next email. With this one, you've got time to spare. You can just crank through all of the emails and just finish the entire... I mean, it's a very short tutorial, uh, but it gets through a lot of the basics that you need to know if you're going to be using a language that needs to talk with the server. So it's pretty nice. Ooh, I'm going to do some cross-selling here. Speaking of Caleb Porgio, as of today, towards the end of August, on JavaScript Jabber, we interviewed him about Alpine and being paid as an open source maintainer and other things on JavaScript Jabber. So that episode just came out last week. So it's a really good episode. I recruited him, but wasn't able to be there that week. So I was bummed, but it's still a really good, really good episode talking about Alpine. He's what you call a rock star developer. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty but he writes PHP, doesn't he? He doesn't write in Rockstar. I think so. And he writes in JavaScript too. But there's a Rockstar language? Oh, okay. Pick number two. Sorry. Give me one second to pull it up. I didn't know there was so a there Rockstar language. Okay. <laughs> Seriously? There is a Rockstar programming language. Uh, it, it qualifies as an esoteric language. Uh, you can find it at codewithrockstar.com. You write code as if you were an 80s, 90s rock artist. So for repeating a loop, for example, the, the string to write is take it from the top or take it to the top. <laughs> and you can just read the code as musical lyrics. And they have an example of FizzBuzz on their homepage. Uh, you can actually use this. There are multiple compilers for different languages. Oh my gosh. Um, it is a thing. I don't know why you would want to do this besides to say that you're actually a Rockstar developer. And that, that was kind of the, the joke is if you don't know Rockstar, you can't actually be a Rockstar developer. This but is yeah, this nuts. is a thing. <laughs> Designed this, for creating programs that are also hair metal power ballads. This is just bonkers. Oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. It, it's like, what is it? 80s, like 70s or 80s poetry in the form of code. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And I actually, I don't remember what I wrote in it. But when I was playing around, I, I was able to write something. You don't have to write it to make it look like musical lyrics. It just looks like written words. And that 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 invokes something interesting. Just there's there's no brackets, there's no extra symbols. You're just you're just writing English in a specific way, but you're just writing English. And that's very interesting to me. The use of comments and rockstar programs is strongly discouraged. This is rock and roll. It's up to the audience to find their own meeting. Oh, this is funny. Yeah, codewithrockstar.com if you want to be a rockstar developer. And I think that is where we will end today. Thank you all for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find more from us, you can go to viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. And you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebold. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next week. Adios. Thanks for listening. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.